News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Dolly Parton is somebody who really defies her age, wouldn't you say? I mean, the fountain of youth, turning back the clock, for as long as we have been aging, I'm sure there have been those who have tried to rage against it, like we seem to fight it every step of the way. But there is actually a difference between your biological age and your chronological age, and one is more controllable than the other, apparently. In fact, there's a new study from Harvard Medical School and the Duke University School of Medicine that says humans can effectively de-age after recovering from stressful events. So now I'm curious. So let's find out more. Dr. James White is with us, the senior co-author of this study and associate professor at Duke University School of Medicine. Dr. White, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. What is the difference between biological age and chronological age? Sure. So chronological age, as I uh, typically put it, is how many candles are on your birthday cake? That is just how how old you are. And biological age is how old your body thinks it is. So the you you can't control chronological aging, but biological aging is very variable. And we're finding more and more on how it fluctuates and differs from your chronological age. How do we find out what our actual age is then? Uh, like not the candles, yeah, yeah, not the candles on the birthday cake. I want to yeah. know how old my body is. How do I find that out? Sure. So we use a approach called epigenetic clocks. That is a um, way that we can take a look at our DNA and see the subtleties of the different uh, chemical uh, attachments that are on these, called methylation. And as we age, this this methylation attaches to the DNA in a certain way that we can predict. And we can take a sample, blood or a tissue sample, and through this very complex algorithm, we can estimate where we are on the biological aging. So uh, basically, it's just kind of what our DNA looks like, and that would predict on where we fall in our biological aging um, yeah, timeline. Okay, so what when we talk about the body aging, um, does it impact that biological age in different ways? It does, absolutely. So uh, we all age at different rates and, and paces depending on just uh, strictly genetics or you know life exposures of different stressors and events. And uh, this way, the biological aging is impacted by all the stuff that we have done through our previous years, and that could either increase biological aging, which we don't want to do, or we want to flatten the the slope, so to speak, and, and slow biological aging. So it just kind of falls under chronological aging so we can keep our, our tissues and cells working as, as well as they can as we age in years. So yes, we can certainly um, change that um, trajectory. Okay, so what did you find in your study then about doing that? Like, how does stress play a role in all of this? So it's it's been known now for several years that stress will increase or accelerate biological aging, and these are very subtle, um, but but acute increases. And what we found what is was upon recovery from that stress, you can actually reverse this little increase in biological aging. Now, this is the first time that we've found a reversal of this process with recovery. So this is kind of hinting that, you know, our bodies can restore back 
our biological aging a little bit and, and allow us to, you know, kind of reset our biological aging and come back down um, and, and uh, kind of decrease that biological aging after the stress of it. Huh. Okay. So then what does this mean for us in the future? Like how does it signify there are things that we should be doing? Sure. So I guess the, the take-home message is is recovery is incredibly important. And what kind of recovery from stress? Um, it, I would imagine it's a combination of physical and, and emotional, right? So if you were to get an injury or a surgery, there's a stress event, not only the actual trauma, you know, you, you go and, and have to repair from whatever surgical intervention, but there's a mental aspect of that as well. So um, I, I would imagine both of those are equally important to return your biological aging. And if it's not a surgical intervention, and if it's just stress-induced, say you've had some some event, life event that's causing chronic stress, I think it's very important, and this data shows that you really need to give an effort to get back and recover um, emotionally, mentally, and, and to... to um, you know, get get back and not just kind of shrug it off because we don't know the long-term effects of chronic stress and the lack of recovery. But when we do know now that it is possible to rescue and, and pull down if you do get over that stressful event. I guess, but the thing, Dr. White, is that stress affects people differently, doesn't it? Like maybe some people don't even recognize the impact that stress is having on their body. Absolutely. So that there's several questions now after we've kind of found these initial findings is one, um, does that, does everyone respond differently? Now, is it, do do our bodies respond the same way? And then we just interpret that stress differently. And is that good or bad? You've always heard people, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. But is that the case? Is their body agreeing with that, that perception that they're okay? We don't know that. Is it, is it purely a mental thing or is there different chemical stress processes that are going on that are driving the biological ages and are those needed to come back down. So, so absolutely, we all, we all kind of internalize stress differently or, or deal with stress differently, but um, we don't really know, is it just a, uh, something relative to, to one another that some people just deal with stress better, but we don't know what's going on inside the body and, and, we're going to take a step further and, and maybe see what the drivers are. And maybe if we can find some of these factors, then we can maybe eliminate or, or kind of subdue them and, and pause this biological aging. Okay, that is so on, interesting. On so you're looking for essentially the fingerprint somewhere in the body, genetic or otherwise, in our blood that would, sh- that would show us levels of stress, even if we don't necessarily feel it. Maybe we're oblivious to that. Absolutely. So there's a lot of stressful situations that you say, well, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. But then all of a sudden, well, I'm seeing your blood pressure is up. I'm seeing, I'm seeing stressful chemistry in your and your body and, your, and people deny I'm okay. But if there's something in, in the blood or something we can pick up that says, no, I, I believe you're under a stress, then that's something maybe we can target. Um, and then target not only the increase during the stress, but make sure it's back down upon the recovery to to help in the recovery and help pull that biological aging back down. Boy, this sounds like a real challenge, though. How do you is that the next step in your research? Yeah, that, that 
That definitely is because it, it gives rise with this uh, recent publication that there there definitely is a driver to produce this increase acute increase in biological aging. Now, there's a lot of energy involved in increasing one's biological aging. There's there's a lot of chemistry there. So there's a probably a host of factors, hormones, proteins, et cetera, that have to go up in order to drive it. And then they have to come back down. So uh, I think finding that, that stress cocktail, so to speak, is the next right. step in, in how we can prevent it. Uh, Dr. White, do you think some people are better or pressed more in tune with what their body is telling them perhaps than others? I do, but sometimes those individuals maybe are too in tuned and um, overthink things. And I can throw myself into that category. Ah, okay. So if, if you know, if you know too much about the body and, and you know, oh, and you know, the triggers of stress and you know, the physiology of the stress, you're thinking, well, why is my blood pressure up? Why, why is my heart rate up? And what, you know, so sometimes that gets you in a bit of a bit of trouble and you know too much and that, and that might kind of accelerate your, your, um, your, your stress a little bit, but, um, so some yeah, of it is so normal. I, I like some of it will fall between a normal range. We just have to figure what that is. Yes, exactly. And, and stress is fine. You know, stress kind of gets a bad, bad rap because it, it's a cliche word. It, it's it's you know bad thing, but stress is is how our body deals with things. I mean, if, if you just went down a flight of steps, your body in, invokes a stress response to bring your heart rate up and everything else. But chronic stress is bad, and and acute stress, as long as you get recovery, which we've now found, can reset. So as long as you identify and deal with the stress, whether it's chronic or acute, especially uh, the the chronic stresses are, are the problem. Um, you have to bring that back down and and how we deal with that, I think, is very individualized. It's something that we can maybe kind of deal more of a personalized medicine approach going forward on on what factors are in individuals that cause the stress or recover from it. Fascinating stuff. Dr. White, thanks for your time. Well, thank you very much for having me on. This has been fun. This is Mornings with Simi. So what happened over the holiday season in airline travel last year should never happen again. Delays, cancellations, stranded travelers across the country, and lots and lots of confusion. So that's why the federal government and Transport Minister Omar Al-Gabra have introduced changes to the Passenger Bill of Rights. And it should change what you are entitled to when things go wrong. I say should because I think we need to know what these changes are and we need to actually see them in practice to find out if they work. So we had a chance to catch up with Omar Al-Gabra, that is Canada's Minister of Transport. And what we really wanted to know is this, right? With these changes, if my flight, your flight is cancelled due to bad weather, what are we entitled to? And here is what we heard. So this is what we're doing. When it comes to snowstorms, look, I think Canadians understand Bad weather happens regularly in the winter in Canada, and, um, and it disrupts not just airlines, all forms of transportation. And, and I don't think Canadians hold airlines responsible for that. So the most that the airlines will be responsible for are two things. First, refund if a passenger wants to refund. So the airline should be refunding that passenger. Second, if the passenger is waiting at an airport 
uh, for a delayed flight because of, of a snowstorm. We are now introducing a new service standard where it's going to require the airlines to make sure that they're looking after that passenger, whether it is providing food or refreshment or telecommunication access. We're introducing a new service standard that ensures that the passenger is looked after while they're waiting for the storm to clear. Okay, so when it comes to the bad weather situation then, does that mean a refund is automatic? Like, I think the problem was a lot of confusion about, do I have to wait on the line? Do I get rebooked? Like, I think passengers just want to know there's automatic rules that are going to happen here. Yes, so uh, what also we're doing with these new uh, suite of rules is that now once a a passenger files a claim with an airline, we are requiring a mandatory uh, compensation or refund within 30 days. So now we're rever- reversing the onus. The onus before used to be on the passenger, where the passenger needed to explain why uh, this was um, uh, violating their rights. Now we're saying that the airlines are obligated to provide refund or compensation within 30 days immediately, and on only only small circumstances uh, that they can. Uh, say no, but if they said no, and if the customer goes to the Canadian Transportation Agency's filing for a grievance, the airline not only is going to be responsible uh, if they are found responsible to compensate the passenger, but they're going to be responsible for paying for that uh, uh, grievance settlement at the Canadian Transportation Agency. So we're creating incentives for airlines to refund the, the passenger or compensate the passenger immediately when the passenger files uh, for a claim. Okay, let's talk about the Canadian Transportation Agency since you brought it up. We know there's a backlog of claims there. We know they're having trouble processing this. How are we improving the process by which we can hold airlines accountable? I'm glad you asked me that question because we are doing multiple things. First, I announced recently $76 million to the agency so they have the resources they need to deal with this significant backlog that happened because of the chaos that we saw last summer. Uh, Second, in these suite of measures, we're proposing new method to settle claims within the transportation agency that will make it a lot faster. We used to have two two stages at the CTA for a a claim to go through. It, It takes a long time. It may require mediation. Now we're saying, no, it's going to be only one stage and it's not, it doesn't need to go to, to a board member of the Canadian Transportation Agency. It can be dealt with by staff. And thirdly, we're increasing the magnitude of fines from $25,000 per, per claim to $250,000 per infraction. So we are increasing uh, uh, the, the authority that the CTA has. And fourthly, we're making sure that the airline pays for the process of the claim. So all that is going to help reduce the number of grievances and reduce the cost of uh, and the, and and the uh, and the inefficiency of dealing with claims at the CTA. Okay, so if there's a weather-based cancellation, then do I, as a passenger, I still have to contact the airline, but I don't have to explain it. I say you canceled my flight, or there was a weather-related delay. I want my money back. I should get my money back. Period. Correct. Uh, and, and there are also other, let's say, uh, uh, the airlines canceled the flight, not because of a snowstorm for one reason or another, uh, or had significant delay. Uh, the, 
also the passenger, not only can they claim if they choose a refund, but if they choose a compensation, which could be significantly higher uh, than a refund. So, yes, this will ensure that passenger rights are protected. And look, Simi, the objective here is to to reduce the number of grievances, to, to reduce the number of disruptions. And the idea is that if we make it tougher, if we ensure that the airlines must have uh, must fulfill their obligation to their customers, that they're going to work harder to uh, to reduce the number of disruptions. Um, so it is it's really intended to reduce disruptions. And God forbid, if disruption happens to a passenger, we want to make sure that their rights are protected. Will this be in effect by the holiday season this fall? Well, look, uh, we have two stages here. First stage is passing the, the bill, um, and, and some of the measures will be uh, in, uh, implemented immediately once the bill passes. I'm hoping the bill passes before, uh, before the end of June. Uh, but then there's some of these measures are going to require some regulatory changes after the bill passes, and that may take till the end of the year. So some measures will be hopefully in force by the summer, some hopefully before the end of the year. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Simi. It's great to be with you. That is Omar Al-Gabra, who is Canada's Minister of Transport, talking about these proposed changes. They were tabled yesterday to the Air Passenger Bill of Rights that would theoretically make it easier for us to get our money back or protect us more in times of trouble. Bad weather related situation like what we saw, for instance, uh, you know, back in December here in Vancouver where the airport was shut down and then we had to fight with airlines about, well, okay, you didn't cancel my flight with the airport. Who canceled my flight and why can't I get my money back? It's supposed to prevent all that from happening. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, it's not something that any parent really likes to hear, that a school in your neighborhood might be closing. I think we all like the idea of our kids being able to walk to a nearby school, to have that in our communities. It's why people get upset when they hear that school boards might be thinking about closing some of those schools down. So that brings us to the Vancouver School Board and the question of whether or not this is being considered. They have a projected operating deficit of more than $4 million for the next school year and a balanced budget is required by law. But they haven't yet talked about significant cuts to close that gap. And parents are, well, they're getting antsy. They're getting concerned that this may involve the closure of schools. And there's a lot of rumors going on out there about this. So we thought, what do we know about this? Joining us now is Susie Ma, who's a Vancouver School Board trustee for the Coalition of Progressive Electors. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. Has this been discussed at the school board level about how is this deficit going gap going to be closed? Well, it's not just about the, de- uh, the budget deficit. Um, actually, this, uh, these discussions have been going on for a number of years, but it's particularly been brought up in the past six months since I've taken office. And what it is, is it's uh, the school board looking at ways to address what they call a structural deficit, which they have to come up with a plan for the next few years to um, have enough money to look at uh, building new schools and seismically upgrading schools and saving money uh, by operating costs. So this is something that is not a brand new thing. However, it was brought up this year as a possible way to address the, the budget, the operating budget deficit. So, you know, trustees can decide to close schools at any time. 
Um, there is policy right now in the um, manual that says that there is a procedure for closing schools if trustees decide that those schools are surplus to the educational needs of the, of the district. So does Vancouver have schools that are considered surplus needs? There was a land asset strategy report that was issued in 2020 by a, um, an outside company. And at that time, that land strategy report indicated that, yes, there could be schools that could be declared surplus for the needs of the school. Now, this report um, I've been trying to get a copy of. Um, I have not been successful so far, and I'm pursuing that avenue of, of getting that report. I know that the, there was a public version of that report that was published, and it basically said that there were confidential items in, in that report that were not available to the public. Um, that report also was requested at, by somebody from the public, and the version that that person or that company uh, received was uh, heavily redacted, and, and uh, the person couldn't make any sense of it. So, oh. you know, this is ongoing, right? Yeah, so I'm just, I'm curious, and where are these rumors then coming from? Because I get emails from worried parents, and they say they keep hearing this. So where is this coming from, this idea that there are schools on the chopping block in Vancouver? Well, COPE has launched a uh, No Cuts, No Closures campaign, and we were aware that this was being discussed, as I say, uh, amongst um, the trustees right from the get-go as soon as I took office. And I've been talking about this option, you know, of, of school closures, and not just school closures, but consolidation of programs, which were, would result in, you know, children being moved elsewhere and not being able to go to their neighbourhood school. And it also sort of comes on the on the tales of what happened to Queen Elizabeth Annex, which again the trustees voted to uh, dispose of that land, and that is, you know, that process has started. Okay, so you feel that perhaps is this just apprehension that parents are feeling out there that they feel like something is being discussed that we don't know about? That that's correct. I mean, I think the thing is is that. We know that trustees are going to have to have those tough discussions about school possible school closures to address the deficit. Um, our senior managers continue to say that enrollment is going to be declining, whereas we, um, I, I'm not convinced of that. And everybody that I've been talking to, some people are urban planners, that's their role, and they're saying that, no, you know, given the development that's happening in Vancouver, uh, projections are that enrollment is going up. So, you know, we shouldn't be closing these schools if, if, you know, unless I am convinced as a trustee and the other eight of us are convinced that uh, enrollment is not going to be declining. Okay, this is the part I never understand about this discussion at the school board level is we talk about density, we talk about housing, we talk about all these people wanting to move here, and yet for some reason we think that we don't need schools and we can't get that land back. Like it'll be impossible to buy that land at today's prices if we need it again. Oh, I totally agree, right? And as you say, you know, there is a discrepancy. The Ministry of Education is saying one number. Uh, Vancouver is saying another number. And we also know that, you know, immigration has, is increasing. Things are happening in the world where immigration, the people are coming here. We know that the city is uh, planning to develop, doing some major development. And I can't see why we wouldn't be increasing in enrollment. I mean, there is that you know, somebody has said to me, well, you know, it's not going to be uh, building with family homes. Well, it doesn't matter. You know, when you look at 
families that need to be in a city, they're going to be moving into two-bedroom apartments, maybe not three, and cost, right? right. So, do you, Are you concerned, then, that this is something that will come up uh, for the Vancouver School Board? Are you concerned that this is something that is going to be on the table? What's happened is that since uh, the cuts and closure, we, like, we had a rally. There was a big rally. There were over 200 uh, people who came out to support No Cuts, No Closures. And what happened was that the school board chair issued a letter to say, you know what, we're not going to be closing schools as of this budget, which is going to be adopted. However, what is still listed in the letter is that there is possibly down the road um, closures, consolidation. And so, of course, they can't close schools. We can't close schools this year because there's a, a policy that says it takes time for consultation. There's a whole timeline that's listed in that policy in terms of closure. Okay, so then what are the next steps here? When might we know more about this? I think this story is going to continue to evolve as we move forward after we pass the budget in May. There will be probably more discussions in private in terms of how to address the structural deficit. And then, you know, announcements will start, will come out at the board level in terms of what the trustees have decided to, to act on. So I would say to the public, stay tuned. The story is not over. And, you know, I can see that there is going to be some pressure on us to look at other um, schools, particularly some of our smaller schools and schools where there's not as much utilization. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time on that this morning. Thank you very much for having me, Simi. That is Susie Ma, Vancouver School Board trustee for COPE. That's the Coalition of Progressive Electors. They are concerned about potential school closures in Vancouver. It all has to do with their land use strategy. I keep hearing these rumors. I get emails from parents saying, can you look into this? Well, we can't get an answer. We have tried many times to actually talk to the chair of the Vancouver School Board, Victoria Jung, and have been told no, oh, that she's not going to do any interviews until the end of the school year. That's what we were told. And I thought, okay, well, parents would like to hear, I think, from their elected trustees about what is in the works, right? This is Mornings with Simi. And one of the reasons why we've talked so much about SFU football here on the show the last few weeks is because my heart really goes out to the student athletes. Uh, because as a parent, you know when your kids are working, especially when they when they love athletics and if they play you know, really hard throughout their high school years, maybe they're hoping of dreaming of some kind of scholarship and some help with that, and then they get it. And then the school just abruptly shuts down the program and your kids are kind of left without that dream. That's where I'm coming from when we talk about this. And that's why, you know, finding out that these student athletes are at a bit of a loss when it comes to the cancellation at the SFU varsity football program makes me want to help. Turns out a lot of other people feel that way too. So today is an important day. The SFU Football Alumni Society, are, they're teaming up with the BC Lions owner, Amar Doman, and they're holding one day for SFU football. That is today. It's to raise money in support of the program that will be used as financial aid for student athletes. And to talk more about that, Mark Bailey joins us now, president of the SFU Football Alumni Society. Good morning, Mark. Good morning. Okay, tell me about this day. What's going on? So it's a significant day uh, in which we are running a pledging campaign and a huge, huge thank you to Mr. Doman and uh, the BC Lions for their you know, substantial and amazing support. 
uh, in which uh, they are contributing $100,000 uh, for every 100 pledges up to 500 pledges and or $500,000. Following the 500 initial pledges, the SFV Football Alumni Society will then match another 100 pledges up to $100,000. So our goal today is to, to reach 1,000 pledges, and that can be in any denomination. You know, So if, if everyone and anyone have all means, uh, you know, if you, if you can donate a dollar or, you know, a thousand dollars, whatever it may be, all, all pledges, uh, you know, go a long way today. So, you know, all, all efforts are greatly appreciated. Mark, what has the last couple of weeks been like? Well, um, you know, I, I, I want to obviously tell it as best as I could from a student athlete's perspective, uh, stressful, uncertain, um, you know, probably a lot of anxiety, uh, you know, I, I can definitely tell you from, from my point of view, it's been consuming. Um, but, you know, the student-athletes as well as their families, you know, kudos to them. They've had to be very patient through this entire process. And, you know, to, to think of the dialogue that's transpired, you know, whether it be from, you know, our point of view of things and or the university's, um, what I would call inaccurate uh, comments as of last week, uh, you know, we felt like we were really headed in the right direction here to get things resolved and uh, the statement that was released last week, I think, kind of created some more disruption for these student-athletes. But, uh, you know, we march on, and the, uh, they have faith in, in our, uh, our committees that are working very diligently to, to get things realigned for these student-athletes. Okay, what, what happened last week then? Maybe you could explain to people. I know that there was a lot of hope because we had talked to you, and people thought that, oh, you know what, we're going to have these meetings, and this is going to go well, but what happened? Well, we had some uh, key stakeholders as well as our society, uh, being myself, uh, leading uh, with some conversation with the university, being you know, with the president, as well as the VP provost. And uh, we're trying to obviously you know, do our due diligence to show the university that there are avenues to explore for competition this year and beyond. Um, and uh, we had you know, shared real documents to show that there is opportunity that exists. And, you know, at the conclusion of that meeting, which unfortunately was only provided with a 30-minute time frame, so it's quite difficult to, to get everything accomplished within 30 minutes, uh, we had asked for a commitment from the university um, to communicate to the general public that they were indeed meeting with key stakeholders and the, the alumni to consider reinstating the program. And uh, that's not the communication that came from following the meeting. I feel as if the communication from their stance was either directly and or indirectly misconstrued. Um, we haven't had immediate uh, conversation since uh, to understand why, why that converse, or sorry, their, their communication was the way it was. And then, you know, they essentially said in which that they had hired uh, someone to, to do a deep dive into the program and, uh, you know, analyze things. But, you know, obviously they're not going to release who that is. Um, but, you know, from, from some people's stance, they may say that's a tactic to prolong the whole scenario here with what we're trying to achieve. Do you feel, in a way, does that meeting feel like it was just lip service? Not entirely, no. Um, you know, and by all means, we're not obviously trying to have uh, any animosity um, we're trying to work with the university as best we can. There was some, I, what I thought was good dialogue. The best feedback in which that I think that we were provided with was that uh, the university communicated that they need to hear more from the students. And, you know, to, to the students' credit, they're an exam period. And they're, 
they're doing their due diligence to take care of themselves and make sure that their futures are taken care of. So it's a little difficult, I think, uh, to expect a whole lot from the students during the, the last couple of weeks. But that was the key communication that I feel as if we took away from the meeting. Yeah, how are the student athletes doing? <laughs> well, you know, like through the process in which I just alluded to uh, a little while ago is uh, they're stressed out. You know, they're, we've been holding meetings, you know, consistently with, with the football players. Uh, you know, weekly basis to make sure that we update them and provide as much inclusion and transparency with our processes and give them the platforms on which they can either speak with us, you know, in an open forum or speak with our alumni and supporters, you know, one-on-one. So, you know, we're doing the best that we can, but um, I do feel as if, if we're not having consistent communication and updates with them, you know, they definitely would not probably be as mentally sound as, as they probably are as of now. Okay, so how can people help today then, Mark? Where can they find out more about this? Well, there's, there's, there's our platform right now is streaming, I believe, on the BC Lions socials. It's streaming on our, our Twitter account, SFU Football Alumni. It should be on our Instagram. Uh, you'll see, like, I mean, I shared it this morning as of 4 a.m., um, and it's already being shared, you know, countless amounts of time. But, like, search for it on, on BC Lions platforms, SFU Football Alumni platforms, uh, it shouldn't be too difficult uh, to, to find if you, if you really do take the, the time to, to research it. Okay, and we know that there's you know, a number of donations that are being matched by Amar Doman. So where does this money go? Very good question. So right now, these are pledges. So as of right now, there's no money that's going to be necessarily brought in as of today. Because right now, we don't technically have a football program for it to go to. So obviously, we're trying to get it reinstated. Uh, so the money does go to supporting student-athletes. Uh, providing that we do get the program reinstated right now, today is all about having a commitment. And then obviously we follow up with regards to um, having those donations come in eventually once we hopefully get this program reinstated. But the student athlete experience, you know, typically our society uh, over the number of years has committed all of our uh, financial contributions to student athletic endowments and, and scholarships, but at the same time to, um, there is a there is a greater need as well to help with the student athletic experience beyond just the academic uh, supports. I believe that for sure. Mark, thanks so much for talking to us and good luck. No, thank you so much for the time and the opportunity. Anytime. That is Mark Bailey. Mark is the president of the SFU Football Alumni Society. They've been deeply involved in trying to support student athletes, trying to get some help for them and understanding what happened here and maybe revive this varsity football program. It is a struggle. So today is what they're calling one day for SFU football. Just check it out. Go to BC Lions online. You can see they are supporting this too. They are big time making pledges to support the program, to support, most importantly, the student athletes here uh, through this through this difficult, difficult time and helping them to, you know, believe that maybe they've got a future doing this. They've got a future doing it where they want to do it.